Hi folks, a quick content note that when we talk about the Sixth Doctor later on, we touch on topics of bullying and abuse. If you want to avoid that section, it's from about 15 minutes and 20 seconds to 17 minutes and 45 seconds. That's all. Hope you enjoy the episode. Relative Digressions. I'm Renna. I'm Felicia. And today we're going to be discussing Time Lash, a Six Doctor serial. I hope you've been saving your breath. Ah, yes, I have indeed been saving my breath for the Time Lash. This is quite an interesting story. I use the word interesting very carefully. <laughs> I think the most interesting part, one of the most interesting parts about it for me is the fact that it is a sequel to a story that doesn't exist. So we open with the Doctor and his companion Perry are arguing about where to go when the TARDIS is ensnared by some kind of weird time tunnel. And we go to a planet called Carfell, where there's some kind of like sinister despotic ruler called the Borad. And essentially, as the story goes on, the Doctor gets pulled here. There's an amulet which gets sent back in time through the Time Lash, a time tunnel which they use to punish people. The Doctor goes back to 1885 to pick up this person to get an amulet, comes back. Uh, there's lots of running around and people being tri- betrayed and all kind of stuff. Uh, the interesting thing is that the Doctor has actually been allegedly to this planet before, which is why I say it's a sequel to an adventure that doesn't exist. So and it becomes apparent throughout the course of the story that the third Doctor was here with Joe and possibly someone else. So so it's like watching a sequel to an old Doctor Who story, except it's not one that's existed. And, and at a particular point in the story, a picture of the third Doctor is uncovered. Um, essentially, it turns out that the bad is the person the Doctor defeated in the previous story, which again, just to be clear, doesn't exist, um, who got mutated in some sort of accident, and especially like a Spider-Man villain. Um, and so he'd be mutated in some form of accident, now he wants to mutate uh, Perry so that she could be his bride, and then he's engineering a war to kill everyone else on the planet, and then he can repopulate the planet with sort of half Morlock things. Um, in, meanwhile, they've picked up someone from 1885 called Herbert, who's kind of with him for most of the story and at the very end we find out that Herbert is actually Herbert George Wells H.T. Wells and that, that actually then puts into context the fact that there have been a number of H.T. Wells uh, references throughout the story it's not a massively complicated plot I think the most interesting part about it is this whole reference to a story that doesn't exist thing but of course from my point of view who haven't seen a lot of Doctor Who I did message Flick and be like is there a third Doctor story this is a sequel to that I've not seen and it's, that's not the case, but it's very plausible for me that it was. And I have to wonder, was that probably how people felt at the time watching it? I mean, it's not by any means the first time that they do this thing. I think possibly the most successfully it's ever done is in the Tom Baker story called The Face of Evil, uh-huh. in which the Doctor lands on a planet that he doesn't think that he's been to before. And it, uh, he meets a tribe called the Sever Team. Uh, and in particular, one called Leela, who then becomes a companion. Right. But the Sever Team fear a great evil god called the Evil One, whose face is carved into a cliff. And when the Doctor sees this cliff, it is, in fact, his own face. Um, and I think that that is that is the most effective use of this, like, hey, there was an unseen adventure and this is actually following on from it. But, it, but it's been done quite a lot. This was not the first time. Sure, but it's the first time I've really seen this gimmick. And I think it doesn't play with it. It, it just genuinely feels like there could have been another episode there. Um, it is odd that it doesn't play with it. There's the moment, for example, when the stray laser bolt hits the wall. 
and reveals that the Borad has covered up this mural of the Doctor. Should be a reveal, but it's not. Yes, exactly. Uh, the androids in Assembly look ridiculous because it, they're people painted blue. Fine, I don't mind that they're people painted blue. Inexplicably, they have dyed yellow blonde hair. Yes, and they're also wearing David Byrne's suit from Stop Making Sense. So those that makes sense to me because, again, as we've discussed on previous episodes, what it looks like is a, is a LARP costume. Uh, that's just that's how you do booked out people in LARP. A, and I felt, I'm fairly sure I have played in LARPs in which androids have been achieved in essentially that way. But it's odd because I think that the costuming and makeup on everybody else is actually very good. And the androids just look notably worse. They do, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, the costuming on the Kefalians, Kefalians, is actually lovely. They do this thing. There's this sort of pleated, layered sleeve look, which I think is very, very, just very good. I think maybe it's just sort of in the 1780s. That was kind of what future clothes would look like. And then you've got um, Vina has this like fantastic, quite subtle for the era makeup and this multicoloured distinctive outfit that makes her stand out from everybody else. Yeah, Avina instantly is the person who who gets sent back through time. Um, and then the Borad, um, who is mutated, who's a kind of combo reptile hu- or humanoid. One of the best prosthetics in the classic era, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, it's superb. It's really good. He has to talk with it, and it looks mildly odd, but it actually works really quite well. Yes, yeah, superb stuff. I really like the... Um, the guards have this almost sort of beekeeper-like faceless hood again they are clearly sorting it from beekeeper costumes but it works really well in that it makes them quite faceless and dystopian guards oh yeah no it does yeah, yeah, yeah. um the bandrills who are the other species who are they briefly at war with so i mean they clearly don't look very good in some sense but actually i quite like them so that's this is not like everybody everybody rags on the bandrills they're nominally puppets and they're kind of obviously puppets but you know what I like them. Am I the only person that thinks the Bandrels are one of the better puppets in Doctor Who? When I say they don't look good, I mean, in a modern TV, if we had something that looked like the Bandrels, they would just, it would be vaguely absurd, right? They could turn up in the Sarah Jane Adventures, and I would not bat an eyelid. Yeah, no, that is absolutely fair and true. I, you know, uh, I, it's, it's the fact that you don't ever see the rest of their bodies. It's a bit, it, it's very, I think, I think part of the issue is that real feeling of it's all a bit star trek except this looks so much worse than a star trek alien that they're not terrible i like that they look a bit sinister but actually they are not they are not particularly um they're very well spoken and sort of gentle yeah they're essentially like look we're gonna go to war on you using this missile that kill, will kill everyone on your planet because we have some treaty with you which gives us grain which we need because we don't have it ourselves and the Carthage basically said, look, we're just not doing that. They have completely broken the treaty. Okay, I mean, you could argue, oh, is war ever necessary and like that? But it's not an entirely unreasonable thing to do. To be- you, I mean, you also get the sense that like, this is an ongoing issue where the Bandrels have been like, you're starving our planet, you're starving our planet, please deal with the fact you're starving our planet and have been ignored for a long time. Yeah, it sort of feels a little bit like just completely blowing off an NPC in Civilization. So, I mean, this is one of the things that I like about Time Lash. One of the reasons I will defend it. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I, I remarked to you after we'd finished talking about the mutants that I also like a little bit in the mutants, which is that the world feels like it is larger than just the story on screen. And one of the foibles of Doctor Who, even every good Doctor Who stories, because the Doctor very rarely revisits people and places and he can go anywhere and any when is that often the places he lands don't feel like 
fully-fledged places, they feel like a stage that just tells one story, and that is the whole world. Carthel feels like a place, and and the, the past history with the Third Doctor is part of it, and the bandrels, the trade negotiations, the gardeliers and androids, it all feels like a place that is bigger than this story. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's two things that this feeds into. One of which is that I think this episode does good world building and feels like a real world beyond the screen. And the costuming and design helps that. The other thing is the reputation of this episode, which I think is the main thing that people are going to be thinking of when they think of Time Lash. And part of its terrible reputation is that people say it looks terrible. And I just don't think that is remotely true. No, um, I think there's bits of it that, that, that look very bad. People, people always come back to the Time Lash itself just being a, a closet full of tinsel. It's a closet full of tinsel. Okay, that's fine. The Ark in Space has a reputation as being one of the best stories of classic Doctor Who, and there's a point in that where somebody's arm is just wrapped in bubble wrap. So there's a double standard here. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, the, I, I do think there are serious problems with the episode. Oh, I mean, yeah, well, let's not deny that, that, like, I mean, I am a defender of Time Lash, but <laughs> it has problems. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, but the look of it, it's, it's fairly good. Yeah. Oh, so I, I have to say, I actually love the music in this. It's very good, but at times very peculiar. Yes, it's really very odd. I, well, I don't know if this is just characteristic of the era, but I just thought it was very, very 80s, but actually in a really good way. It really feels like the, the music is a real character here, and I thought it was really interesting. Um, I, I have some thoughts on why what I think actually doesn't work about the episode feeds into people's perception of its look. Because I have, I have a th- thought on it as well, but I suspect it will be a very different take to you. Yeah, okay, well, I mean, we shall, shall we start talking about it? So, so I did know going in that it wasn't a well-liked episode. I didn't know until afterwards when I looked it up that it's in some poll at some point it was considered the second worst Doctor Who episode ever. It, it's often cited as the worst or one of the worst episodes, to the point where it's kind of like a byword for it. Yeah, um, I don't think it's very good, but I think the main problem is the script. And the script and the editing, which sort of go hand-in-hand here, are just very, very weak. The editing in particular, and direction. The editing and direction. Yeah, yeah, okay. There were some acting criticisms I could definitely make, but I think the actors are in some sense doing the best with what they've got. But um, no, I think... I mean, so a good example of the way in which the editing just doesn't seem to quite work, and you could tell there are production problems behind the screens, because you, you, any competent production team should be fixing things like this. The first scene of Perry and the Doctor is a quite good scene between them, although I have a lot of thoughts about how bullying the Sixth Doctor is, but actually it's quite a funny scene in some ways, um, where they're arguing about where to go. Some good lines here, actually. But the next time we see them, they're kind of in the middle of being caught in the time lash, but we never saw the moment where they suddenly went, oh, what's this? Oh, something's going wrong. When it cuts back to them, they're not already in trouble, but the tunnel has just turned up off screen. Yeah, and we don't understand how they learn about it. Like, it's not terrible. I cope with it. I get what's going on. There's some slightly dodgy effects, but fine, whatever. But this is not an editing that is hanging together. Yeah, I mean, for my money, the thing that really shows up where the editing and the direction have fallen completely flat is what should be the climactic set piece of the story when the Doctor enters the time lash on purpose to get the Contron crystals. And there is no sense of tension or drama 
whatsoever. It's like the doctor basically having a casual chat whilst doing some abseiling. Yes, uh, I mean, you say this climax, but actually it's at the start of the second episode. But it's, what I mean is it's the period of the highest peril in the story. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So it doesn't feel like that at all. Just have a wind machine and it would be better. It's weird as well, because of course we've not seen inside... Like, why is it inside the time lash and abseiling cores of crystals? I mean, the whole time lash can see is really, conf- is really odd. It's got nothing to do with the story. Precisely. I mean, it's quite. It's only there to pick up HD Wells, essentially. And it doesn't even make sense, because the whole point is like, oh, this technology is more advanced than Carthel should have. How did the Carthelians come by this? And it's like, oh, the Borad made it. But the Borad is a Carthelian. They, they do kind of explain that in that his mutation has given him super mind powers or something. Yes, and he, he's lived longer than normal. But it's still... Yeah, I mean, I mean as, I, as I say, he is fun- functionally a Spider-Man villain. Absolutely. In many ways, I would argue this is a Spider-Man story. It apparently has Doctor Who, but, you know, it's very comic book. I will admit the things which are called Morlocks, I heard it as Morlocks with a CK, as in the H.G. Wells thing, which, of course, in the end, it's meant to be like what he named them after. Yeah, even even though like I've seen it in text and discussed them before, I every single time forget that they're not just called Morlocks. And then there's a there's an important reveal involving the Borad at the end of the story when you find out that the Borad is in fact half Morlocks. And and at that point he goes, Oh, he's half Morlocks. And instead of you going, Oh, he's half Morlocks, you go, Oh well, Morlocks with an X. Right. <laughs> I quite like the old man who actually turned out to be a robot. That's quite cool. I I, th- I really like him. I think he is my second favourite character in the story. The clone plot is just nonsense. So the story the story is basically over and reasonably well told and then the Borad comes back in a clone body and there is just 10 minutes of gibberish yeah uh, and the thing is and that that 10 minutes is that there are problems throughout the story but in those 10 minutes they become egregious yeah it sinks the episode i think it's the fact that he's cloned that's weird. So that other board was a clone. I mean, I thought what they were saying when they, I first heard it is that he basically, he, he had regrown from the skeleton that had been left. He gets a time ray fired back at him. And I thought basically it turned out that he was completely unkillable, even from a skeleton, that he would regenerate from that. And actually, incidentally, that, that makes sense. It would make a lot more sense. I mean, he, he actually has a line to the Doctor where the Doctor remarks on his time technology and he says the Time Lords aren't the only ones with control over the fourth dimension, Doctor. And that is a really interesting line, actually, because it sort of speaks to... It's almost as much in that moment, you're actually kind of on the side of the Borad. Like, yeah, why should it just be the Time Lords who get to just muck around with time. Well, yeah, so that's the odd thing, is that like, if the whole plot was just about his gripe with the Doctor and trying to get vengeance with the Doctor, there's a way that you could be quite sympathetic to him. But actually then you've got... Oh, but his actual plot is to kill all mammalian life forms, turn Perry into another half-Morlock so she'll survive the genocide, and then breed with her to repopulate the planet. Except that doesn't make sense, because why is it Perry he's chosen... It's Paul, but I mean, it, it's Dr. Moreau, right? It's, obviously, it's meant to be, but it's that whole classic of, ah, yes, I have fallen in love with it. And it just gets very tired and hokey. What I don't understand is how you intend to populate this planet with little Borads when you don't even have a mate. That is under control. Well, don't tell me you've got a fat female Morlocks with a slinky walk. Not yet. But when I do, her name will be Perry. Um, I quite like Perry. Yeah, so this whole season, Trial of the Time Lord has less of this issue, but 
Wait, there is no good showcase for Perry because she can't escape the foibles of this season. Is she just here for this season? or No, she leaves in Trial of a Time Ward in a way that, again, really kind of exemplifies these problems. But so she only very briefly is with the Fifth Doctor and then almost solely is with the Sixth Doctor. Yeah, so it's on the Sixth Doctor. So I really hate he shouts. I found that just bullying to the extent that I actually found it difficult to watch. You are not alone in that respect. The Doctor being grumpy, I can handle. So I never found that with Capaldi's Doctor, for instance. I I didn't feel the same degree, but I, I just found the way he treats her just upsetting. Yes, so did, broadly speaking, everyone. This is why the show got cancelled. I don't understand. Is he, is he written like this? Is it what Colin Baker is doing? Who knows exactly what John Nathan Turner was thinking. Basically, nobody else thought it was a very good idea. Colin sort of hoped that he could have the Doctor soften over time, but then it got cancelled. But like John Nathan Turner, just for really impenetrable reasons, just decided that he wanted this Doctor to be horrible. We were talking about the fact that the third Doctor feels chauvinistic, and that's true. But actually, this Doctor, the way he treats Perry actually feels not just chauvinistic, but actively misogynistic. So this is a weird thing. The Pertwee era is like, oh, it's chauvinistic. It's not meant to be. This is like, it's misogynistic. And it's knowingly so. It's just not nice. And what's weird is that I like some of the other interactions I have. The bit where he's like, oh, we should go to X. And she's like, I don't want to go to X. And so he sells on another place. And she's like, that's what you say about the other place all the time. It's a lovely, actually, moment. But it just comes off the back of this really nasty... Like, I don't know what the relationship here is meant to be. I almost think it feels a little bit like it's meant to be a sibling relationship. Like, just because of the ages and things. It doesn't feel like a romantic thing at all. I bloody hope it's not. And yet, Perry gets sexualized a lot, like... She doesn't massively in this episode. She gets damseled. Not so much in this one. She wears bikinis in a lot of episodes. And, like, she was basically cast for her looks. But the whole behind-the-scenes treatment of Nicola Bryan is perverse. Oh, really? I mean, I, I thought she, she was a very good actor. I mean, what did you think of the accent? Well, she, she's American. Well, no, she's not. Oh. And most people think that that is a hilariously terrible American accent. I, I, I didn't notice. I'm perhaps too used to bad American accents and stuff. But she was made to keep it up off-screen and pretend to be American off-screen? What? Yeah. Why? John Nathan Turner was making a lot of very strange decisions. Why he felt the need to fake to the press that Nicola Bryant was American, it made sense in his head. And that's the only rationale for a lot of things going on in season 22. It, it's just, yeah. Um, I like the bit of the plants. That's quite fun. It's nice because I think it's like the only time they ever remember that Perry's a botanist. Oh, oh yeah, really, because I thought at least maybe hope she has at least one plant moment in episode. So, as I say, I think there is a better version of this that exists in a different timeline, in which you write it more like an older brother-younger sister relationship, make it less abusive, but make that kind of arrogance there. And that actually could be quite an interesting thing. So I know what their relationship is like on the audio dramas, where it softens over time and they have this kind of peer-to-peer kind of relationship. I mean, that sounds great. I actually almost want to go and follow that up now. And I bet that was quite cathartic for both actors as well. I mean, they softened the Sixth Doctor, but he still nitpicks and he's still pedantic and he's still opinionated. 
but they have Perry sort of pull, pull him up on his superciliousness. This, this, he becomes more aware of his grandiosity and pomposity and appreciative of the fact that Perry sometimes shows it to him. That's Yeah, so I that sounds quite nice. What was depicted on the screen was something that looks almost exactly like an abusive relationship. Like she just wants to go and explore stuff and instead what she's got is she's dealing with basically a man who has complete control over her life, who can dump her out of this and just change it up and her life and, and, and threatens to do so. And she just has to kind of go along with it. It was hard to watch. Yeah, and it mars this entire season. I like I didn't I didn't know I'd have this much to say about it once I started saying it, but yeah. And the thing is, but the thing is, that's not something wrong with time lash. No, this is when I say I like time lash. I'm contextualizing it within season twenty two. Like time lash has its flaws, but they are the flaws of season twenty two not the flaws of time washing and of itself. So, like, it doesn't make sense to me to, like, call out time wash as if it is worse than oh, Vengeance on Varos would be. Like, Vengeance on Varos has quite a strong following in a certain portion of fandom, and Vengeance on Varos, to my mind, is all the foibles of season 22 to the max. And so time wash being called out as, like, the nadir of Doctor Who it's like, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with it, but what's wrong with it is the flaws of season 22. Yeah, I think it has it probably has a few flaws as an episode we talked about, but I, I think I don't disagree. But fandom cult singles it out in a way where this, it's like clearly being called out for things that are not the broader context, because people will lambast Time Lash, who are big fans of Vengeance on Varos a couple of stories earlier, which has all of these problems. I think we haven't talked instantly about my favourite character in this, Tekka. He is the best thing in it. Who is uh, played by Paul Darrow, is his name? Yeah, Paul Darrow. Uh, now, I, I'm not familiar with the work of Paul Darrow, uh, but I understand this is in some sense heretical because he's one of the main characters in Blake 7. He is indeed Kerr Avon. Uh, which I've watched some clips of now, and it looked really, it looked really good. And actually, someone I know in real life who is a doc, big Doctor Who buff is also a big Blake's buff. So that's not 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 uncommon. I mean, they share a lot of heritage. No, you, and you can see why. That they, they, yeah, exactly. But anyway, so um, Paul Darrow is in this. He plays Tekka, who is the um, sort of uh, lackey of the Borad. He he ends up being Malin, who is sort of like the nominal, the sort of nominal leader. But then the Borad is over them as the actual leader. Um, there's quite an interesting essay that's from the 30s, I think. It's called, like, Who Goes Nazi? And it, it's a meditative phase of its time, but it's a meditation in, like, American society on, like, who would, if Nazism came to America, can you imagine such a thing? Goodness. Who would essentially be a Nazi sympathiser? Uh, and it's quite an interesting character piece, um, and very relevant, perhaps, in our modern age. But Tekka is basically one of these people. I mean, he, he is not inherently a totalitarian person, you suspect, but the Borah's rise has basically um, meant that he can actually he he would like Carfell to basically be a dominant imperial power and the board is basically the way to do that and that's kind of what he did in it's interesting that's not my take on it i think Tekka would devoutly cleave to whatever the borad's philosophy was so that he could be the right hand of power. Well, no, that, that's kind of what I mean, though. He just wants power, but in his last scene, when the Borat says directly, I'm going to kill everyone on this planet other than me and any other reptiles, and he's like, what? 
No, I don't think he would accept everyone on the planet dying apart from him, the Borad, and the reptiles. I think there is part of him that generally just care about Carfell. It's just that he cares about it in the context of Carfell being strong. Because when he kills the Borad, he does mention about it's. I mean, he has an attachment to it. Um, the, the Borad has the quote-unquote will to power, Tekka respects that, because he certainly doesn't kill him because he looks like a Morlock. Unlike everyone else who's previously seen the Borad other than the Doctor, who's gone, oh, what are you? And then he gets... Yeah, he's really unfazed by it, which is quite interesting. But the interesting thing about the character is that Paul Darrow is essentially taking the piss. He plays him so camp. But he's the best thing about it. Oh, he's... I mean, just to be clear, this is really good. He plays him so over the top. Every line. Like, there's no scenery left. But, I mean, at one point, of course, they literally run through the scenery. <laughs> there should be no scenery left because he should have eaten it all. It's some truly amazing line reads, including the one we alluded to earlier, which is, save your breath for time, Lash, Doctor. Most people... What's it like? Most people... Most people depart with a scream. With scream. Oh, I love it. I love it. You're as warped as your dictator, friend. Save your breath for the time lash, Doctor. Most people depart with a scream. The vortex is ready, Maiden. I, well, I think my favourite line is, uh, you see nothing and you understand less. Oh, it's just, ah, it, oh, yes, it's just so, oh, oh, so good, so good, love him. When he gets killed, almost perfunctorily, it's a bit like, oh. It's really offhand. I think he probably has more screen time than the Doctor in this story, and then he's just dead. You know, it's funny, because I think if he got wounded but didn't die somehow, and if the second Borad at the end was actually him having mutated himself... That might be quite interesting. I would almost feel more satisfied if the end villain was a mutated Tekka. Possibly because I wanted to see more Paul Darrow. Like, narratively, the most satisfying way for the Borad to die is to be killed by Tekka, in my opinion. Yeah, okay, I agree. So the, the Borad gets killed by Tekka. And then the Doctor has to deal with Tekka. You know, in some sense, though, the bones were a really good, quite interesting story here. Yeah, so I think you were too harsh on the script, to be fair. Oh, so it's, I think the story is good, the script is bad. Oh, OK, I see what you mean. Yes, sure. So the, the story is fine, the script is not good, um, in terms of the st- how the story is told, and I agree that it's told also by the direction and the editing. It's just poor. And I think that makes it look worse, because you just spend a lot of time quite confused. It just puts you off. I think once you're put off, you then focus on the sort of more obvious things, which are that things look mildly crap. But I mean, they only look crap like because you're, you know, it's easy to. I joke. mean, so it's Doctor Who, like yeah, exactly. Again, this kind of comes back to what I was saying about like time wash being bad in the context of Doctor Who as a whole versus like in the context of season twenty-two and stuff. It's like look at other episodes of Doctor Who that are not getting the same amount of flack, and they look often worse. I mean, look at an episode like Midnight, the 10th Doctor's era, which is actually not a bad analogy, incidentally, because uh, I believe Time Lash is also the low-budget episode of the season. Midnight is not doing anything particularly sophisticated. I think it has a couple of matte paintings and some lights. Well, I, I, I wouldn't use Midnight as the example here, because Midnight's visual design is very simple and bland because you're meant to be looking at the characters' faces. No, for sure. Uh, and I agree, and Midnight, so much, Midnight, I think we both agree, a much better episode than this. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, like, like, legions. Like, like, I have some unorthodox opinions about Time Lash, but, but I'm not going to go, <laughs> Time Lash is better than Midnight. <laughs> no, um, I, I just think that people focus too much on looks, and actually that, the, the floor of elsewhere. 
And I think this is the thing. I think people find it easy to blame when things don't look great. When when the story doesn't work. I think there's something very unique in the way the Doctor Who fandom does fan consensus, especially about bad Doctor Who. And when you look back historically, it's had it since at least the early 80s, and it was gestating before that. Yeah, so this is not something I'm massively embedded in. You know, I am an enfranchised fan, as we talked about before. I'm pretty aware of the show, but I, I don't really participate. I don't go on the forums or things. I'm not really on Reddit. You don't have to marinate in the forums for long to definitely pick up this thing in two ways. First of all, I think Doctor Who fandom sees badness and dodgy, clunky moments as kind of integral to the whole. But the other thing is Doctor Who fandom relates to this show by scapegoating a thing that it hates and really hammering it. Yeah. The latest one of those is the Timeless Children, but Time Lash is very much that. Time Lash is literally like a byword for bad Doctor Who in a kind of mythically... People who've never seen it know that Time Lash is bad. And the question of like, okay, but why people will bring up the tinsel as indicative of Time Lash's worst ever Doctor Who. And like I say, people hail The Ark in Space as a classic. And that has a very, very transparent bit of bubble wrap in it. To the point where Jodie's first season directly made a joke about the bubble wrap. Right, yes. And so it's like the question of like, hang on, so why this huge disparity in reception? And the wrong baker, I think, is is a huge factor. And and you can't separate Colin Baker from the fact that his two seasons are both marred by bizarre and wrong-headed decisions. Yep. But that has calcified in fandom into a sniffiness where a thing is automatically worse if it's associated with Colin Baker. And conversely, things are more forgivable and the highs are higher just by the fact of being associated with Tom Baker. I'm going to say it, by the way. I haven't enjoyed any of Tom Baker that I've seen so far. I've not seen loads. That's interesting, and I really want to know which ones you've seen, but we'll talk about that offline. Sure. I am going to say I am not sure I am a Tom Baker fan. Oh, we, we haven't mentioned that the fact that there was just... Uh, the Doctor appears to have been destroyed in his TARDIS, stopping the missile, <laughs> and then literally... Um, he goes, I was like, how do you, how do you survive? He's like, I'll tell you later. Trick, I'll tell you later. And it's just not explained. And, and I think it's, is it meant to be a joke? Did they run out of time? Okay, doctor. Fill us in. Fill you in? Why weren't you blown up? Ah, I'll explain one day. It's a neat trick. Oh, doctor. It's a joke that is... Not an earned joke, because it's a joke that is also being used as an excuse not to do the work. Yeah, I think... I had this thought yesterday, actually. This is very much an episode about Doctor Who. So that's curious, because like I definitely feel like that moment has the makings of like a very deconstructive moment, in the sense of, like, we could write in some techno-babble waffle here, and it would be literally no more narratively, like, integral. But I don't think it's that sophisticated. No, I don't think it is. But I think in some sense, it doesn't... I'm not sure the episode knows that it's about Doctor Who, but it is about Doctor Who. Yes, I see what you mean. It is the limits of the show 
just really showing. And and I think it's it's interesting to reflect. I think the show is the modern show, I should say. We're five Doctors in now. I, I don't think JD would be the last Doctor before a hiatus, but it would not surprise me if she was the penultimate one. Bold statements. I have learnt enough to not opine about this one way or another. Actually, you know what I'm saying? It wouldn't surprise me. Uh, I actually think I think anything could happen. In the next half an hour. Indeed. Indeed, Jodie could be the last one, but, but it doesn't quite feel right to me. But I think things could go wrong, or the show could kind of pick back up. Well, I mean, at the moment, we're also just in this very strange... And we're in this strange time. TV production, who even knows? Right, exactly. And I think that might oddly shape things. I think that might be good for the show. They either, will they go out of it a bit more gusto? It feels a bit like, a bit like less machine stuff. On the other hand, this crew hasn't had that long. So I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, so like, this is what Time Lash to me, the editing, the directing, it's what happens when really underneath it all, the show is starting to die. Uh, ironically, I, like, I, I, I wouldn't say it's a strong analogy, but there is a bit of a like a Stalinist thing going on on Carfell where everything has become completely centred onto the Borad, um, like total control from the top. And the same thing is going on in Doctor Who with John Nathan Turner at this point. Total control from the top. And John Nathan Turner is making all these really wonky decisions that nobody else really understands, but they're making it to the screen. Yeah. So, um, yeah. John Nathan Turner is Stalin. Who is also a lizard. That's the conclusion. So the question I wanted to ask was, if Time Lash was made in the modern era, where do you think it would best fit? So the interesting thing there that we've touched on but haven't properly discussed yet, the whole celebrity historical that isn't a historical thing with H.G. Wells, that's, I think, a thing feels very like a Stephen Moffat era kind of thing. It is. I read that actually celebrity historicals, in this sense, weren't that common. Like, they happen all the time in modern Who. Yeah, you get, like, one a season these days. Like, a lot of historicals didn't have a... Yeah, they didn't have, like, the, the people in. Yeah, so the H.C. Wells thing, it's just kind of cute. Uh, apparently, the autobiographical biographical details just don't make any sense. Oh, it doesn't make any sense, no. Like, you have to assume that Herbert's a bit of a parallel H.G. Well, I saw someone arguing that what appears to have happened is the writer got confused between him and Arthur Conan Doyle, <laughs> in, the, in, in that his biography does match up quite well with Arthur Conan Doyle. That's interesting. Yeah, I, mean, I haven't looked up the details to confirm, but I, I just find that quite amusing as a concept that he just got completely <laughs> confused as to which turn of the century writer it is. Um, which is funny, because you can easily imagine them doing the same thing with Conan Doyle, but riffing on the lost world. Yes, no, exactly. It's not a bad idea. But having said, having said it, it's quite a moffat gag, and I think you're not wrong. I would be inclined to put it with 13. I just think that a lot of the qualities that she has of the Doctor are really quite good here. Which is really funny because that is the absolute diametric opposite of Colin Baker. Yes, but that's, that's almost kind of what I mean. I think actually in many ways this story is not well served by Colin Baker. And actually I think it needs a different kind of Doctor. And I wonder if 13 for this. If I break it down into like these different core elements, Carfell's political thing with the band roles and its power split between the mail-in and the Borad and all of that feels RTD. In particular, the band rules, for some reason, just really feel RTD to me. They do. It's very mocks of Valhoun. Yes, ex that's it. That's exactly it. It's This episode reminds me of the end of the world. I hadn't realised until you said that. Yes, I, I actually think you're... Yes. Um, the end of the world, in many ways, is it's a very classic Doctor Who episode. I'm, I'm sort of increasingly realised. I, I mean, you, you've heard me sing its praises before. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I love it as well. But let's, this isn't an episode about the end of the world. But this does remind me of that. So in that sense, the world 
when I was talking earlier about Carfell feels like a world beyond this story, that element, I think, is very RTD. The story beats, the aha moments of the story feel very, very Moffat to me. Not just Herbert, but particularly that. But the the past Doctor involvement, the Borad is a robot. And actually, it's a figurehead. Like all of that, to me, is very Moffat. I wonder if the Beast Below is also a good comparison point to draw here. Funny you should say that, because literally, as I was saying that, I was picturing the Smilers in my head. Yeah, we're, we're along the same line. Yeah, it's exactly that. And I can definitely see Amy in the kind of role Perry is in here. Uh, yeah, that is true. <laughs> Which is unfortunate in many ways. Yeah, I think it speaks to many of Moffat's flaws that you can see that, but I would like to see the 13th Doctor do this. It's much more changed if it's a 13th Doctor story, yes. whereas if you're saying, like, which would preserve it the most, then I think Matt Smith's first season, like, preserves it as it is the most. Yeah, I just think I would like I would like the reinterpretation. But yeah, yeah, like, what gets the most out of it is, like... Almost the opposite question. You gonna let him stay? Oh, I don't think so. I rather think he'll take my advice and return to 1885. He'll uh, tell the world, knowing Herbert. But who believe him? Not for me to say. The waves of time wash us all clean. We were discussing actually yesterday AIs that can generate human language text. And Time Lash does sound a bit like I gave an AI 200 Doctor Who titles and it generated... I disagree. A cliché Doctor Who title is usually like a something of the something or a terror of something. Like a single word that's like made up is not a formulaic Doctor Who title, although notably one of the other like worst ever Doctor Who stories is Time Flight, so they've definitely got a bad rep, a bad rap. I thought I my argument is Doctor Who is about time travel, so time in the title is kind of a gimme, and Lash just sounds a bit like sort of some kind of naval thing. Interesting. Well, at some point we should have a conversation about that, because I don't think Doctor Who is about time travel. I, I was Googling it yesterday, and the thing that surprised me was that I found that there is like, oh, UFO, the Jerry Anderson series, also has an episode called Time Lash. Oh, really? Uh, that, 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 that's as far as that anecdote goes. But It's just such an anemic name. Oh, yeah, I think it's quite, uh, I quite like it. Oh, you know what would jazz it up for me? I think if it had an exclamation point at the end. Time Lash! <laughs> well, I mean, I do think that the ampersand in the title of Love and Monsters is possibly the, the single most important piece of punctuation in a Doctor Who story, so I, I'm with you there. I think we can save that for another day. Although, actually, I'm glad you mentioned Love and Monsters because uh, Love and Monsters, of course, was another of these episodes that the fandom consensually hated. It ha- yeah, exactly. So that's it. So you do, you do know the kind of phenomenon I'm talking about. Yeah, I absolutely do. And the thing is, I think Love and Monsters is also an episode kind of about Doctor Who. I mean, Love and Monsters is actually an episode about Doctor Who in a very intentional way. Yeah, absolutely. But I actually think... um... Like, that's a very different, and I think better season 22 that doesn't take itself so seriously. That's a season 22 that is treating itself like Paul Darrow is treating it. Yes, exactly. Paul Darrow is not starring in Time Lash. Paul Darrow is starring in Time Lash. You are right. And that's so much better. <laughs> it's just the better. Yeah, Paul Darrow has walked on from a better version of the episode and, and he's giving all he can to it. But... Borad will not be pleased with us. Stop whining. I have noticed that it is better to die than to fail the Borad. If you were to die, I don't think anybody would notice the difference. 
uh, what are we doing next? Yeah, um, so I think we said Fifth Doctor. Yeah, and, and I am excited because there is, I think, like only one story in the entire Fifth Doctor era that I am not excited to watch again. Okay, so um, I'd like something quite self-contained, but something that's doing something interesting interesting story-wise. Interesting that you say that, because one of the notable things about the Fifth Doctor era is that it's less self-contained. Give me a tone or a style or a, just give me a keyword. Um, horror? Horror? I'd quite like some horror. Horror. Oh, okay. Horror, 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 horror. Uh, Black Orchid's horror, but it's weird and quite bad. And it, like we've done a couple of stories now that are like regarded as bad ones. Yeah, yeah, it would be nice. To, yeah, let, let's do what what's um regarded as a really good Fifth Doctor episode. Um I mean, so Hello folks. At this point in the conversation, I suggested to Renner that we should watch The Ark of Infinity. This, as you may know, is one of the most continuity-laden and least popular stories in all of Doctor Who. And the moment we finished recording, I realised that I'd suggested the exact opposite of what Renner wanted. So, we debated and decided that The Awakening was much closer to what we were going for. So in the next nine seconds, when you hear us saying that we're going to watch The Ark of Infinity, please substitute in The Awakening as appropriate. Thanks. Superb. Right, Ark of Infinity. We're doing it. Great. Superb. Thank you. Well, I've been Renner. I have been Flick. And this has been Relative Digressions. I think if we're done, then it's time for this. Ah! Wait, is that the... Because, of course, we have to depart with a scream. (laughs) Okay, very good. (laughs) I like the ants one better. Mute ants. Shut up. Relative Digressions is a 2020 production by Renna Robson and Felicia Barker. You can find us on Twitter at WhoDigressions, on Facebook under Relative Digressions, or email us at relative.digressions at gmail.com. The music is Sonic 1.0 by Sonic, S-O-N-N-I-K, with additional sound from Red Sky Lullaby and Luffy. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in the future. Whoa, 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 whoa.